Today we are kicking off our summer sermon series. It's called JJ and the Prophets. And no, we did not find some Christian boy band somewhere hidden within the bowels of our church. So JJ and the Prophets, we're going to take the time to study um, um, five of the uh, lesser known Bibles, uh, Bible books in the Bible throughout the summer. And what you're going to see are JJ is one in the middle here. This is Jonah. Let me introduce you to Jonah and Jude. They are going to serve as the bookends of our sermon series. Then on the left over here, we've got Nahum, Haggai. He actually looks like a Haggai, doesn't he? I don't know what a Haggai looks like, but if it was one today, he would look like it. And then Obadiah on the end. So Jonah and JJ, Jonah and Jude are JJ, and the prophets is what we're going to spend our time looking at. And most of these books were written about 3,000 years ago. So it's um, going to be fun to take a look at something written so long ago and how we can draw out truth that applies to our life today. Now today we're going to start with the book of Jonah. And I know some of you are already thinking, Scott, Jonah is not one of the lesser known books of the Bible. And I would agree. Everybody knows the story of Jonah. But I believe because of the story that the message of Jonah gets lost. Because it's a great story, right? Jonah gets thrown overboard of a ship, big fish swallows him up, spits him out on, on dry ground. There's amazing imagery in the story about Jonah and the great fish. I mean, imagery so great, Veggie Tales even made a movie about it. But I think for a lot of people, that's where we like to leave it. As a story, as a movie, as a fable, as allegory, and question that those things really happen. And I am convinced that they did, that it is factual, that it is historical, and the book was written for God to reveal his character to us. And I'm going to give you three reasons on why I believe this, and I'm going to do it in reverse order. Number one is Jonah, the prophet, is recognized by most religions in the world. Number two, Jonah is listed in 2 Kings chapter 14 as a contemporary of King Jeroboam II, who reigned over Israel around 7800 AD. And then lastly, but more importantly, is this, um, that Jesus used the story of Jonah in his teaching is an analogy of his own impending death and resurrection. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and 40. So the Pharisees were challenging Jesus. They wanted him to perform a miracle to prove who he was. And look how Jesus responds. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now I personally find it very hard to believe that Jesus would point to a fable or a made-up story to communicate what he was going to face as he went to the cross. 
And interestingly enough, Jonah is the only minor prophet that Jesus mentions by name. So Jonah's story is real. It's factual and it's historical. All right, so with that established, let's dig into the text. As we do, you're going to see that Jonah is only four chapters, four short chapters, and I'm going to outline them for you like this. This is right in your sermon notes. You can follow along. Chapter one is that Jonah runs from God. Chapter two, Jonah prays to God. Chapter three, Jonah obeys God. And in chapter four, Jonah pouts to God. So hopefully you don't relate to that part of the story. All right, so what we're going to notice as we start to dig into the text is this book hits the ground running right out of the chute. There's nothing about the author. There's no salutation. There's no introduction. There's no context. It starts hot right out of the chute. So open up your Bibles, Jonah chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 2. It says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Because its wickedness has come up before me. So right out of the gate, two verses in, we see God telling Jonah, I've got something for you to do. Go to Nineveh. One simple sentence, one simple phrase. Now, we don't have any idea what Jonah was doing when God spoke to him. We have no other history about him. But that sentence, go to Nineveh, has turned Jonah's life upside down. And we're going to soon see through this story that Jonah does not like what God is asking him to do. Now, one simple sentence flipped his life upside down. And note what Jonah was to do. He was to what? Go preach against the city of Nineveh. So this is not a, hey, excuse me, people of Nineveh, I've got some great news for you. God loves you. God has a plan for your life. No. Jonah had to go with bad news. Preach against it. And this wasn't any old bad news. This was bad news from the Almighty God. That God was sick of their wickedness. He was over it, and he was about to do something about it. So what wickedness was God tired of with the people in Nineveh? Now, at this point in history, Nineveh was not the capital of Assyria. It was soon to be, but not yet. And Assyria was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. Military power, monetary people, they were the big shot. They were the big shot. And they got that way by taking people over country and cities. And they didn't get together meeting in Starbucks to negotiate a merger and acquisition plan. (laughs) They saw and they took whatever they wanted. And they did it in a way that is cruel beyond anything that we can imagine today. When they would take over a city or country, 
And, uh, and this is known throughout the, the findings through archaeological stuff and the histocracy as some of the um, findings that are there. That they would skin people alive. They would mutilate them. They would rip out their tongues. They would chain them so they couldn't run through their chin. They would take their skulls and build pyramids out of them. And in these records, they did this as a badge of honor and a sign of power is what they did. So these are evil, evil, wicked people. And the Assyrians had no use for the Jews. And the Jews hated the Assyrians. They hated what they stood for. They hated their cruel ways. They hated their arrogance. They hated their idolatry. So the thought of a Jewish man being asked by God to go preach to Nineveh was absolutely repulsive. It would be like putting on purple and black and rooting for the ravens. That's how repulsive that this was. And God just wasn't asking Jonah to talk to his neighbor or somebody in his workplace. It was 550 miles away that he had to go to this wicked city to preach to them. And it wasn't like he was just going to walk down Main Street, Nineveh, saying, hey, I got a word of the Lord for you. This was a fortified city with multiple moats outside. One of the moats is recorded being 150 foot wide, 60 foot deep. Multiple layers of walls with the inner wall being 100 foot tall, 50 foot wide with towers that raised up another 100 foot on top of that wall. Menacing city that they lived in. Jonah was like, yeah, right. Thanks, but no thanks. As far as I'm concerned, Nineveh can go straight to hell. That's what they deserve. Come on, God, drop a fiery ball of molten matter right on their head and wipe them off the planet. That's how Jonah felt. And he let his feet do the talking. Look, chapter 1, verse 3. So God asked Jonah to go, but what does Jonah do? Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to what? To flee from the Lord. Now Jonah doesn't just ignore God. He doesn't pretend like he heard some other calling he runs away from God, far away. So here's where the story takes place, right? Right here, Gath Heifer. He tells him to go to Nineveh, which is 550 miles that way. So what does Jonah do? Jonah goes 35 miles to Joppa, which in today in uh, modern day Israel is just south of Tel Aviv, a little port town to get on a ship to go 2,500 miles to Tarshish, which is modern day Spain. So Jonah took some pretty drastic measures 
to get away from what God was asking him to do. God spoke one simple sentence to Jonah. And his life was turned upside down. Go to Nineveh. That's all it took. Off Jonah went. He left everyone. He left everything. He tried to ditch God. He tried to get out of going through what God wanted him to go through. Evil people, moats, walls, 550 miles, forget it. I'm not up for that, and it's certainly not the plan I had for my life. Have you ever been there? Ever have one sentence change your life? I'm sorry the test results came back and it is cancer. I'm sorry, but I don't love you anymore. I'm sorry, but your position has been eliminated. I'm sorry, but you can't have children. Sorry, there's nothing that we can do to save her. Sorry to inform you, we don't want you to come to this university. That one sentence changed your life forever. Upset every plan that you had for yourself and nearly brought you to your knees. One sentence. And like Jonah, you certainly don't like what God has for you or the consequences that are going to come from what lies ahead in that one sentence. The effects of the chemo, the financial troubles, the loneliness, the embarrassment, the pain, the struggle, the hurt. All those things look like a wicked mob of people surrounded by moats and hundred foot walls. Basically, God is asking you, go to Nineveh. You ever been there? Ever tried to run the opposite direction? Ever tried to avoid what God had placed in front of you? Let me ask you a rhetorical question because I know the answer. How did that go for you? Probably about the same as it did for Jonah. Look at chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. Right? So these are men of faith. 
They're pagans though. They're crying out to their own God. And I'll come back to that in a minute. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now listen, guys, these are professional sailors. This is not their first rodeo, right? I'm sure that they've encountered a number of storms going across the Mediterranean Sea. And this verse says they were afraid. Each of them crying out to their own God throwing cargo overseas, right? That's their profit. That's their livelihood that they're so afraid that they're throwing the stuff overboard. This is how bad and how severe this storm was. It's how God works, doesn't he? When we're in a process of running from him, we're in a process of trying to dodge what he's put in front of us. Each step away from him, a further step of sin, a further step of consequence. And he can certainly send storms our way to grab our attention. And those storms can come in many shapes and sizes. It could be family troubles. It could be financial trouble, health trouble, sick family, uh, destruction of career, loss of friends and family. See, sin and and disobedience, every step that we take away from God and what he has for us, it has its consequences. And those consequences don't only affect us. They affect the people around us. What about those poor sailors? They were just doing their job. They were just picking up a passenger heading to Tarshish for some extra profit. And this storm comes about. They find themselves stuck in the middle of a battle of wills between Jonah and God. Innocent bystanders caught up in this battle and his disobedience that Jonah has towards God. And you see, that's the truth. That in our sin and in our deceit, in every step that we take away from what God has for us, there are consequences that affect us and affect those around us. So as this storm rages on, these poor sailors naturally start to wonder what in the world is going on. And God helps them figure it out. Through the casting of, a lot, of lots, they figure out that Jonah's the issue. They confront Jonah about it, and Jonah confesses, yep, it's me. I'm the one that God's angry at because I'm disobeying him. That's why the storm is here. So you know what? I'm going to help you out. Take me, throw me overboard, and that will take care of the storm. But look how these pagan sailors respond. Look at verses 13 to 15. 13 to 15. It said, it said, instead the men did their best to row back to land. Right, so, so they didn't like the storm. Look at it. Instead the men did their best to row back to land. We want to get rid of this guy. <laughs> 
We don't want to be responsible for throwing him over sea. Let's get him out of the boat. But what happened? But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. God did not want Jonah on dry ground so he could continue to run. So he whips up the storm even greater to make sure that they couldn't get him to dry land. Then they, who's they? This is the sailors. They cry out to the Lord. Not their own God. Please, Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God to the Israelites. They realize now, God is God. God is in control. God is dictating the circumstances now. Do not let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, again calling to God, have done as you please. God, you're sovereign. You're in control. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging seas grew calm. And the reality of this sequence, I believe, it's another attempt of Jonah trying to avoid God's plan. He figured, I would rather drown in the sea than do what you are asking me to do. I'd rather drown. I would rather die than go to Nineveh. I'll just drown and I'll be behind me. Bad decision after bad decision. But God says, not yet, pal. You are going to deal with what I want you to deal with. And we all know Jonah does not drown. God miraculously sends the great fish. Doesn't say well. Sends the great fish, swallows Jonah whole, and he's inside the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Can you imagine what is going on in his mind at this point? (laughs) Stuck in complete, utter darkness. Fish stink on the outside. (laughs) Can you imagine what that baby smelled like on the inside? Probably gasping for air to stay alive. Tangled in seaweed and other stuff. Stuck. He couldn't run. He was going to have to deal with God. Have you been there? Stuck in the circumstances after running from God? And then you get a place in your life where you just can't run anymore. And you're stuck, tired, worn out. And you finally have to face the music 
of what God has for you because you can't run anymore. What do you do? Well, we'll see in chapter two that Jonah prays. Jonah chapter two, we're gonna look at verses two through nine. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas and the current swirled about me. All of your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened the deep, surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. So stuck in his circumstances, not able to run anymore, face to face with God, we see Jonah finally making some spiritual progress, don't we? When he starts this prayer, we see in, in verse 3, you hurled me, right? There's an acknowledgement, God you're the one that put me here. You are sovereign. You're the one that did this. And in verse four, he accepts, right? I have been banished from your sight. I accept. I am here because of what I've done. You put me here and you put me here because what I've done. And then you see in verse 5 and 6 that he expects to die because of what he's done, right? The waters threaten me. I sank down. He's resigned to the fact my undoing, my disbelief, my disobedience, this is why I'm here, this is the punishment for what I've done, and I am going to die because of it. And only then, he thinks he's going to die. Then what happens? I remembered the Lord. He finally comes to a place, he remembers the Lord, and the Lord rescues him. It's an amazing what a few days in the belly of a fish will do for you spiritually. Isn't it? You see, God used the fish to stop Jonah dead in his tracks, to slow him down and to get his attention, and to come face to face with God. And how does Jonah respond? He prays. 
I can't run anymore. I'm out of road. I'm stuck in this fish. It's dark. I expect to die. I turn to you, God. Face to face they meet. And see, that's the importance about prayer. Because prayer isn't about telling God what we want. God knows what we want. See, the importance of prayer is that meeting with God face to face is that helps close the gap that we've put between us and God. To draw us back after wandering away. Knowing that we could be in his presence at that time. See, here's the point. Here's the whole point. See, you may not want to deal with what God has for you. You may not be able to beat the circumstances that you're in. You not be able, might not be able to cure what ails you physically. You, not might, you may not be able to figure out a way around the pain and the hurt and the disappointment. But listen to me. Through prayer, you can get through it. The psalmist writes, though I walk through the valley of death, there are going to be times where we don't like our circumstances, we don't like what God has for us, but through prayer, we can get through it. And in Jonah, in response, Jonah turns back to God. And when he does, God stands ready to use him. The fish spits him out on dry land, and God tells him, now, go to Nineveh. And I love this. I love this. God could have chose someone else. You screwed up. Sit on the sideline. I'm giving someone else this opportunity. He doesn't do that. And you know what I also love? He doesn't say to Jonah, you know what? Because the people of Nineveh freaked you out so much, I'm going to send you to Tahiti and you can go do some beach evangelism. I'm going to give you something easier to do, a lower hurdle for you to jump over. No, same person, same difficult task. Hey, Jonah, glad your head's back in the game. Now go do what I asked you to do. And Jonah does. He makes the trip to Nineveh. He shares the message that God gave him, and we find that in chapter 3, verse 4. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. That's the whole message. I could t speak to you from personal experience. That would be a whole lot easier to prepare for than what, what I'm doing right now. <laughs> Eight English words, four words in Hebrew. And it's not a very uplifting message. Where's the evangelism? Where's the flipper flapper? Where's the worship songs? Where's the balance of exhortation with grace? 
Nothing but impending judgment. That's it. And this is how cool God is. That's enough. Because the people of Nineveh repent. Well, at least for now. We'll learn more about them next week when we study the book of Nahum. And check out how God responds to the repentance in chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Nothing like a happy ending, right? The plan finally fell into place. God called Jonah. Jonah ran away. God sent a storm. The sailors threw Jonah overboard. The storm ends. The sailors worship God. God saves Jonah through the fish. Jonah spends three days and three nights. Jonah finally goes to Nineveh. He preaches a four-word sermon. The whole city repents. God relents. It's the greatest revival in the history of the world. Who cannot love the story? Jonah. That's who. You just can't seem to please some people, huh? Remember how much he hated the Ninevites? He didn't think it was fair that God saved them. He didn't think it was fair. And he pouts about it. Look at chapter, verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from slending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah was a prophet. He knew God well. He knew God's character. We see here, he basically quotes word for word, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, which is a tremendous statement about who God is. So Jonah wasn't ticked off because God threw him a curveball and caught him by surprise. Jonah simply did not want the Ninevites to know about God's graciousness and forgiveness and mercy. What, what, what's the, look at the irony in that. He was fine with God's forgiveness and graciousness. We were stuck in the belly of the fish. But not for the Ninevites. No way. You ever been there? Somebody hurt you? Somebody hurt you so bad that they weren't worthy of your forgiveness or God's forgiveness. They deserve exactly what they get. Give it to them, Lord. They don't deserve the grace that you shower upon me day after day after day. I don't know about you, but that is convicting. 
So after this bemoaning to God, Jonah expects God to respond. So much so that Jonah takes off out of the city, up on a hill, looking back, sits down, and waits for God to do something. And God does respond. Not the way Jonah wanted him to. First, God sends a plant to give Jonah some shade. And Jonah's really happy about that. But then God orders up a worm to eat the plant. And then God sends a scorching sun on him. Now Jonah is really angry at this point. So much so that you see in verse 9, I am angry enough to die. And then God finally has enough of Jonah's shenanigans and the story ends with God admonishing Jonah. Look at um, verses 10 and 11. But the Lord said, you have, been cons- you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? So clearly God's word to the prophet indicate that Jonah had no right to be angry with God's actions. Who was Jonah to question God's forgiveness of the people of Nineveh. It's God's prerogative. God's the creator of the universe. It's his creation, his plan, his way. You see, it's about God. It's not about Jonah. And this is why I think the message of the book gets lost in the story of Jonah and the great fish. Because when you look at the surface, when you look at the story, it seems to be about Jonah and the fish. But when you really study it, this story is about God and about God's character and who he is. And I believe when you study it closely, we find three things about God in this story. And these are in your sermon notes. First, I believe that the book teaches us that God is sovereign over all things. He is principal. He is chief. He is supreme over all things and all circumstances. He's the master architect, the exquisite planner of everything that happens in his universe. You see, it is God who wanted the people of Nineveh to repent. Jonah is the one who disobeyed. And in response to that disobedience, it is God who ordered and created a storm. He prepared the fish. He had the fish swallow Jonah alive. He told Jonah to go again. He ordered the plant to rise. He ordered the worm to eat the plant. He ordered the scorching sun. And you know what fascinates me about this story? 
the only person to resist God throughout it was Jonah, the prophet, the one who knew God the best. The sailors caught in his battle of wills, what did they do? They came to know the Lord. The Ninevites repented. They knew and came to an understanding that God is boss. And Jonah did not. The Ninevites, as powerful as they were, were not the boss. And we certainly aren't either. See, the things of this world are set into motion because God has a plan of salvation for his people. The world is not about us. The world is not about our comfort. The world is not about the plans we have made for ourselves. It is about him. And we may not like the circumstances that we are in, but God has placed us there. That one sentence that may have turned your life upside down, changed everything in your life, is part of God's plan for you. And through prayer, you can get through it. We have to trust that God is sovereign. God is God and we are not. Amen? Second, it is clear that this story, in the story that God chooses to do work, his work, through his people. Could have God brought the Ninevites to himself? Yes, did he choose to use Jonah instead? Absolutely. You see, we are God's instruments. He has given us time. He has given us talents. He has given us treasure that we already use to fulfill his plan, not our plan. And we've got to do that in our workplace. We've got to do that in our schools. We've got to do that in our homes. We've got to do that in our communities. That's what God trusts us with the stuff that he has given to us. The sovereign creator of this universe trusts his people to you and to me. He chooses to do things that way. We got a choice to run away like Jonah does or to be obedient and do what he is asking us to do. And let me tell you, just like in this story, God will not stop pursuing you until you are doing what he's asked you to do. And lastly, we learn that God is a loving and gracious Savior. That his loving kindness is not limited to our prejudices, our pride, and our indifference. That his loving kindness and compassion and grace are not limited to good people. The people that serve in children's ministry, the people that hold babies, the people that help the homeless. But also to brutal, murderous, idolatrous pagans. 
We saw God bring the pagan sailors to himself. We saw God bring the people of Nineveh to himself. God loves all people. Even the people that have cheated on you. Even the people that have stabbed you in the back. Even the people that talk about you. Even the people that fired you, hurt you, beat you. The God we serve, the God we love, loves them as much as he loves you and me. And like Jonah, we can't let our hate of them and hate of what they've done to us get into the, in the way of our relationship with God and the plans that he has for us. That's the message of Jonah. That God is sovereign. That God chooses to use his people to do his work and that we cannot let the, 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 the hateful feelings and despicable feelings that we have towards others stand in the way of what he has for us. So God, we thank you this morning. We thank you for this story written nearly 3,000 years ago to speak truth in our life today. And Father, let us be a people today that know that you are God and we are not. And through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us and through prayer and our constant communication with you, we can get through anything that you have put in front of us. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for using us. And thank you for trusting us. It's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray together. Amen.